Welcome to the 902 podcast, the official podcast of the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm Captain John Vick, and I want to thank you for listening. This podcast will give you an inside look at LSO with topics and guests to discuss public safety issues impacting Lancaster County. Be sure to subscribe for highlights on news, cases, and the people working for you at LSO. You can also follow us across social media at LSO Nebraska on Facebook, X, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Welcome to the 902 podcast. We are here in studio on a snowy January day. Um, it, it was a little brisk outside. Darn cold. Yeah, I'm really glad you put us off site so we get to cross 9th Street every time we come and go from this place. I was reminded this morning that 50 years ago today was the coldest day ever in recorded history in Lincoln, Nebraska, which was 33 below zero. Oh. Actual temperature. And I was, I was working in a gas station at that time pumping gas because self-service wasn't around. And I remember working on that day, 33 below zero, pumping gas, and it was frigid. Yeah, I, I would say... Boy, well, we're going to get close, not that close. New Year's Eve that year, it was like 26 below zero, so. Yeah. Was it windy, or do you remember? I don't think New Year's Eve it was windy, Uh, but it really didn't matter at that temperature, you know, whether it was wind or not, it was just flat cold, so. It's cold, stuff breaks. Yep. People slip. Yep. Yeah, no fun. Well, speaking of slipping and sliding, um, we've got a special guest, a return guest to the show, Sergeant Drew Bolzer. We're glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for making it in, braving the roads. Um, we've had you on before to talk about recruiting, but today we want to talk about uh, well something that's that's near and dear to at least three of our hearts. We we're joking that Ben's outnumbered today. Um, yeah, I'm not going to be able to add a whole lot to uh, this. You've you've commanded the the patrol division while this was going on, but uh, we're talking about crash reconstruction, mm-hmm. um, formerly known as accident reconstruction. Yep. We'll uh, and we'll unpack that a little bit later, but. Drew, thanks for being here. Um, you know, people can go back and listen to your, your previous episode to hear a little bit more about your background, but how did you get into the, the crash reconstruction game? When when did that kind of hit your radar, and, and what was your path to get where you're at today doing crash reconstruction? Actually, this is one of the things that I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, I've always kind of had a mechanical background and grew up turning wrenches from my dad's shop as a mechanic, and doing it on the side as a hobby and a little bit for profit as well. But I actually went to college to be a mechanical engineer, and gosh, I got about 20 hours short of that degree when I met, um, gosh, and I'm not going to remember his name, but he was the reconstructionist LPD, worked for us for a while at the front door. Um, Harnley? Yeah, Dave Harnley. Dave Harnley. Harnley. I sat down with Dave Harnley over here when LPD was over at the station north of here and said, Dave, you know, gosh, I'm an engineering major. I want to get into crash reconstruction. You're you're in charge of LPD's team. What what's what's a guy got to do? And he's like, well, just keep keep getting your engineering degree. But if you want hands-on stuff, you want to go into law enforcement. And about that time is when I was happened to get a job from LPD because of a a, a misunderstanding that turned into an arrest of my roommate and some false ID manufacturing that a search warrant was served in my door in college. And the chief at that time, Ken Cobble, offered me a job for them because he kind of liked how I handled the situation. So uh, I started out there, and then uh, eight years later, I came over to the sheriff's office. And about a year after I started here, um, I started to be able to take classes and got all the way through basically advanced, intermediate, technical, and recon. And I think at that point in time, the the current commander of the patrol division was kind of sick of me taking all the classes and said, shoot, I guess you'll have to be on the team now because you're certified. And Don Young uh, (coughs) graciously let me be on the team, and I've been on there since 08. And then I started to command or be the team leader of the crash reconstruction team in 2017, and I've had it ever since. And uh, so you... With that, I mean, you didn't you didn't stop there. I mean, that's yes, you're the, you're the current team leader of our yep. crash reconstruction team here. But you've also got um, quite a bit of influence in the crash reconstruction community um, beyond LSO. What's tell tell us about that? Yeah, so crash reconstruction is obviously one of those areas that requires a lot of expertise and training. And there's a, there's an organization called ACTAR, which is the uh, the accreditation commission for traffic 
Accident reconstructions. Accident reconstructions. Okay, so that is that's a certification that we offer to all of our crash reconstructions, but not everybody gets it because it's it's pretty daunting. No, and I think um, at Rex this year, I, I want to say there was less than two thousand people worldwide that hold that accreditation. Yeah, and uh, so that's that's something that you got early on in your crash reconstruction career, and we've got uh, a few other crash reconstructionists that have and maintain that right yep. now. Um, but uh, you've also been a part of uh, our Midwest Crash Reconstruction Association. Yeah, so to go a little bit further into that, to, to keep that accreditation, you have to have uh, a certain amount of continuing education credits. So you have to go to approved courses and, and things that are approved by the commission to keep your proficiency. And one of those ways is through different organizations and our office so chose to be members of the Midwest Association of Tax Technical Accident Investigators. And so I was at one of those conferences and getting my, my hours and training in and I'd gone to a couple at that point in time when they asked me to not only be on the board but host a, a conference here and it took a couple of years, but we brought them in here in 2015, and we did some work with um, uh, Midwest Roadside Safety and did some live crash testing here. And uh, it was a year or two later in Wisconsin, they asked me to be on the board. And then I served as the president for, I want to say, from 2019 until just this last year, and where I stepped. I'm still on the board, but I'm no longer the president. But... Um, that organization provides a lot of live crash testing, a lot of good training, a lot of valuable input, and allows people to, well, more or less communicate with other people in the business. And when we run across something we're not necessarily an expert in, we can reach out and figure out who that expert is and ask for some advice and some expertise. And I think um, everything's getting so technical now that there really isn't one expert out there that can do all of the things in reconstruction. You have your mechanical experts, you have your airbag control module experts, you have your mathematical experts, and it's everything's getting to be very, very technical, especially now with self-automated vehicles and the amount of accident avoidance collision stuff that's going on. There's just a lot now. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that you went through that because I think some people, it'd be easy to think that, uh, you know, we just, we sent you to a, we sent you to a crash reconstruction school once upon a time, and now you're a crash reconstructionist, but... You know the amount of amount of work that you guys do to maintain that proficiency, all of your certifications. Um, it, it's 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 right up there with any other you know um, industry profession um, throughout the country. So uh, kudos to you guys for doing that. Um, you know I remember my baptism by fire with crash reconstruction was when I when I somehow stumbled into the team leadership role. Um, when you were getting that conference up and going. Mm -hmm. So um, it, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I, I had a chance to do it. And uh, you, you've certainly been doing it a lot longer than me. But um, somebody that started doing it even before us was you, Sheriff. Um, when, when did you begin your crash reconstruction training? Oh, gosh, it had to be early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Well, I guess maybe it was early 80s. Um, you know, I'd gotten sent to a uh, an intermediate accident investigation course, mm -hmm. and and they gave you just enough of the reconstruction, you know, speed formulas, those kinds of things, and what you can determine um, and that really piqued my interest, kind of like Drew was describing. And um, from there, I went to an advanced accident reconstruction school, and then I went to a, or investigation, and then I went to a reconstruction course. So that yeah, that was. Uh, well, I'll take that back. Actually, uh, the reconstruction course was in 87. Okay. So it, it took a number of years to get those prerequisites and then uh, get the uh, get to an accident reconstruction course. Did the sheriff's office have, when did, when did actual trained reconstructionists become a thing? Well, um, I was probably the first reconstructionist that we had. Okay. I think it was 80, maybe it was 84 okay. um, when that, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, because I remember going to Sheriff Adams and, and, you know, at the time, if you got detailed to a crash and it turned out to be a fatal crash that was going to be chargeable, you work it. Yeah. Um, and if we couldn't work it, we called in the state patrol to work it. And I said, there's no reason why we should be calling in the state patrol. We have the expertise in house. Mm -hmm. 
And so, um, you know, some folks didn't like calling somebody in to take over their investigation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we get that. Uh, but I was, you know, I, I got it so that when we had a, when we had a fatal crash, they they would call me in for the crash, and uh, and then I'd I'd do the final stages of that investigation. I never wanted to take it over from the deputy, but help them out, and then and then work through the make sure we had all the stuff that we needed to do the reconstruction, all the measurements and all of the different things that we needed uh, to do it should it go to court and be necessary. Yeah. Now the deputies get there and they're glad to see the team show up yeah. and take over. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And like you mentioned, Drew, because it, it has become so technical now um, based on the types of vehicles that you have involved and um, the different things that we use. So, you know, over the last hundred years, um, hundred years plus since automobiles have been a thing in the United States and in the world, crashes have happened. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I can't remember which class it was in that I, whether it was recon, it was probably one before recon, but it's simply when two vehicles try to occupy the same point in space at the same point in time. And that gets you a crash. Mm -hmm. Now they used to call it an accident. So what was the, what was the, we've been trying and within the law enforcement industry, we've been trying to move away from the term accident a little bit. What help us out with that? Oh, I don't know if this is necessarily my expert opinion, but, um, accidents always tend to be something that, um, are preventable. Like, you know, a slip and fall is an accident. Like you could have prevented that slip and fall crashes necessarily only aren't always preventable, especially if you're driving in your lane doing what you're supposed to be doing and someone come across and hits you head on, it's a crash. It's, it's just a change in terminology to get away from Some, the insurance someone, world. Someone did something wrong right. to make that happen. It's not right. just a act of God happenstance. Right. I think the other thing too is the, the, the criminal prosecution part of, of, of crash uh, mm -hmm. investigations. So um, it's kind of hard to say it's an accident when the driver was drunk or did sure. something that precipitated that crash. So that, that was another. An, an accident assumes that it's um, not a criminal violation. And right. a crash it just defines it as that. What, what it is, yeah. Right. yeah. The yeah. defense is, you know, it wasn't my fault. The roads were slick. When in fact, you should have been traveling slower, or had better equipment. There's a variety of different things, but. Yeah. Let's. Let's back it up for the training aspect of things a little bit. So, and, and Sheriff, it sounds like it hasn't changed a lot since when you did it in the mid-80s, but all of our deputies get basic crash investigation courses uh, through their academy training. Right. Um, and, and that's where you learn how to, you know, measure a street, um, find a point of impact. Um, you know, I think Ben still sticks his thumb up in the air and, you know, tries to figure Especially out. Especially on days like today. And, and he guesses how far that is. <laughs> yeah. Point yeah. A to point B. Right. Um, but, uh, so beyond that, what is the, what is the courses to become a crash reconstructionist? And, and it does take sometimes a few years. Yeah. Yeah. There's several hundred hours to be a certified reconstructionist. To be certified, to, to actually say you're a reconstructionist. You've got to go through your basic crash investigation, which I think everybody mm -hmm. gets as a as a as a police officer, law enforcement officer. But then you go into intermediate, which is getting more into the math and how to measure and and how to document the scenes and see what different types of skid marks are, different types of roadway evidence, um, different types of damage to the vehicle, and then you get into technical, which um, does some more momentum and energy. And then you get into reconstruction and you are putting a lot of that together with software and a variety of other things. Uh, the problem is, is crash reconstruction isn't just as simple as it seems on the surface of trying to determine what happened. You've got headlight analysis, you've got tail lamp analysis, you've got momentum, you've got energy, you've got... Um, different roadway evidence that you've got to make sense of. And not only do you have to do that, but you also have to be able to document this in the court of law. So you get taught how to do photography. And photography in a bunch of different scenarios because most of these crashes don't happen during the day when it's sunny. It happens at night. So now you have to show what the ambient light was, what a true record of light was, 
um, whether the taillights were visible and we've got technology now to, to determine the luminescence and some of the things that are going on, how much roadway lighting was there, what vision obstructions, what human factors are involved. You know, people say, I looked. Well, they may have looked, but if they look the other way and then look back, how far away could that car have been seen? So we've got to answer a lot of questions that uh, often cases we don't have any witnesses to testify because they may be all not alive anymore. And so we have to take the evidence that we have and produce uh, a courtroom testimony that hopefully, if done right, would lead to a conviction of the person at fault. Hey, I'm Captain John Vick with the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. When it comes to your career, don't settle for good enough. Don't settle for ordinary. We won't either. Be different, be better, be exceptional. Start your future today at joinlso.com. Ben, I think that's kind of the, the fascinating thing to me about crash reconstruction because sometimes it can be just like Drew said, it's the middle of the night. Two cars hit head on, and sometimes, sadly, both both drivers end up deceased. And then we got to figure out what happened. So, from a from a tr- patrol captain standpoint, um, and you served in that role for for quite some time, what's what's going through your mind when you know when you get to a scene like this, and and you're you're getting a call and calling out crash reconstructionists. Well, I guess, and I get—I didn't know I said this, but I was always the one that was asking, well, how fast they were going. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, the, the patrol gets there and tries to, you know, our, the number one thing after a crash is taking care of the injured individuals and doing that. So that's another thing that people, you know, I don't think understands is, you know, rescue units are coming yeah. and sometimes your evidence gets uh, moved and uh, can make it confusing. Or washed things. away or, or yeah, mm-hmm. all those things. And that, they, you know, it's uh, like when you have a crime scene, you lock it down yeah. on, you know, you can really lock those uh, up and, and preserve the evidence. But on a crash for the, the first 20, 30 minutes, you got a lot of people in and it's out chaotic. of that scene. Yes. And so that's one of the things on that. But I tell you, um, having those people come in and be able to work it. And it also helps, uh, the patrol, because then we can get our people back out on the road taking calls for service. These experts can come in and do that and uh, um, take care of the accident part of it. And one of the things I I was always so impressed with was the new technology, because uh, when I was the captain over there, um, we got a pharaoh, a scanner, and I'll let yep. Drew's an expert on that. And But that has changed the game on how accidents are measured and Evidence is collected and documented and all that. Yeah, run us, run us through maybe you know, an, an evolution of the the equipment. You know, from uh, let let me start. Go ahead. Because I had a go bag. Okay. And I had a, a pair of uh, sheriff's office coveralls, just brown coveralls with said sheriff on them, so that you didn't get all oily and greasy in your uh-huh. either uniform or other clothes. I, I carried two hundred foot tape measures, not one, two. Okay. Um, I had. Uh, a, Big, huge, biggest spike nails I could find with a hammer, uh-huh. so I could uh, pound the nails in and hang on my hang my uh, roller tapes or my tapes on there. I had a roll of tape, uh, carried crayons, um, contractors' crayons, okay. uh, because I used to use chalk. But if the scene is wet or there's fuel or antifreeze, crayons don't write very well. So you use uh, contractors' chalk, and and uh, yeah. So I, I just had a bunch of those little. Line level and uh, uh, plumb bob and a thousand foot line and line level and you know all that sort of thing. So that all changed with introduction of the total stations. Mm-hmm. That and was it, the first advance in technology. I think was total stations. That's what I remember doing. Which I never on, used. Yeah, on on our training days. So our crash team trains once a month. Yep. Uh, like some of our other specialized units, but you know when you and I got started, that's what. That's what we would spend our, our Wednesdays doing was we'd, we'd take an intersection in the county um, and we would try to, you know, work work ahead for ourselves and, and diagram it with the total station. Yeah, like with most technology, if you aren't using it every, every day, you lose it. So I guess I want to talk about the technology, but maybe this is a good time for me to kind of give kudos to those of you at the table, our, our command staff and including the sheriff. 
uh, has understood the, the importance of accident reconstruction. And uh, our department is very fortunate to have the access to the equipment we have, have access to the training we have, and not many agencies can say um, that they have the equipment training that we do. I, I, I think our unit is second to none, and that's because of you guys, and I do appreciate that. With that being said, um, yeah, technology is very important because it is very technical. And if you're trying to prove a motor vehicle homicide case and you're going to take somebody's rights away from them and you're going to put them in prison, you got to have the evidence to do it. And I think a lot of times people just take the inherent risk with a motor vehicle and and understand that, you know, if you're killing somebody with a car, it's no different than with a gun. It's just a different means of doing that. So we treat those as homicide investigations. They get the same attention to detail. And a lot of this technology is used hand-in-hand with our crime scene um, investigation team. So um, the total station started out, and and really we borrowed a lot of stuff from the civil engineering world. Uh, They were already measuring things very precisely, uh, almost to a ten-thousandth of an inch, and we took that over to the crash reconstruction world. And we had uh, a total station for quite some time that... One person held uh, the dummy end. Yeah, a reflector, <laughs> and that's where the point in you were measuring your evidence. And then the total station was set up in an area that you could view most of your crash scene, but you always had to move it, and that was kind of a arduous task. And you have to relocate. You have to relocate it, and then make sure your measurements from the last one are the same. And then we were fortunate enough later on, early on when I started, we got a robotics total station. So. It changed it from a one-man operation or a two-man operation to a one-man operation. So mm-hmm. you could just go around and you ran everything from, as Ben said, the dummy end. You, you just held it from the reflector and it put your points in. But, you know, you may have on a big crash scene, if you're measuring roadway widths, evidence, gouge marks, vehicle position, um, tire marks, you might have 250 to 500 points that you're going to do over a couple-hour period. And that robotic... Total Station changed the game for us. I mean, it really sped up our our investigations. And then in 2015, when we held the conference here for Matai, we we brought some vendors in with that. And one of those vendors at the time was Faro, and their manufacturer, their German manufacturer of um, 3D scanning. And it allows us to, instead of getting 250 to 500 points in a crash scene over the course of three to four hours, we could get probably 250 to 500 million points in that crash scene in less than an hour. And it is very precise technology, and we can use it for crime scenes. We can use it for crash scenes. We can use it for anything where we want to accurately depict the exact situation in which this event occurred. And it basically just creates a 3D model of the scene, and we can go back and later measure where... If you were on a crash scene and you're measuring with a total station and you missed a point, you missed a point. You never got that point back. You could never figure out what that measurement was. Now with the Faro and the 3D technology, um, we can always go back and take a measurement anywhere we want, and especially if it gets into court and the jury has a question, how far away was this and how tall was this and really how long was this, we can go back in that software and measure it and get a very precise measurement where we were never able to do that before. Now, one of your members on there is a pretty big expert with the, the Pharaoh. Yeah, and I, I, we really haven't hit on the team aspect of this because it, this is obviously a team. This is a reconstruction team. Um, when I started, we had about nine people on the team. We're down to a little less than that now, but um, it's me, uh, Deputy Amy Leeson, who has been on it since I've been on it, in fact, just a little bit before. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had some attrition through our office and had some people leave. And then we went up and uh, got some more interest. And Deputy Jason Schneider is on the team. And um, Deputy Rhonda Wick is on the team. And Deputy Josh Kingswood is on the team. And Deputy Dan Sarns is on the team. So um, when we got that Faro technology, a lot of training comes with that. And through the attrition and some few other things, we've... Um, upgraded in software and technology since then and in doing so we're it was actually quite a bit of money to get these people trained because you have to have a pretty technical expert do that so um with the administration's blessing here we sent deputy amy leeson off to get uh train the trainer and she's provided not training not only training for our agency but 
for crime scene with the Lincoln Police Department. She's trained several people at outside agencies within the state. And this technology is kind of starting to filter through the state. And uh, she is definitely the res- uh, subject matter expert when it comes to anything um, 3D scanning. Deputy County Attorneys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They need to, so she taught them what the Pharaoh can do for them in court in their presentation. So, And she's actually worked with Pharaoh of trying to change their software so um, they can have different versions of it in court for testimony. Um, yeah, she's a leader in the agency or in, in the nation for technology when it comes to that. And she gets phone calls all the time from all over the country asking questions about it. Yeah. yeah and the, the, well, I'll, go, I'll go to conferences and the Pharaoh reps are there, you know, trying to sell their products at, at uh, some of these professional conferences. They, as soon as they see I'm from Lancaster, Nebraska, oh, yeah, we know Amy Leeson, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so she's uh-huh. uh, made a big mark in the industry there. Well, we didn't stop just with, with laser scanners. You guys have now mixed in um, UAS drones um, and, in the mix. And so, hand scanners. And hand scanners. So yep. we'll talk about those a little bit. So obviously every piece of technology has its limitations. Um, back when we had our first scanner, we couldn't scan the rain. Um, we had a, a, a limit on some of the things that it could and couldn't do. And, you know, obviously any technology, there's always a learning curve and uh, uh, a change in how fast the technology is coming. And scanners are no different. And the first scanner we had was great, but the technology is exponential from what it was initially. So now we can scan in the rain. We can scan in a lot worse conditions. Um, but that has its limitations. It, it, it can only scan in certain areas. So now we have a hand scanner on top of that. Um, we kind of realized some limitations with some homicide cases that we worked where bullet casings got under counters. Well, you can't scan under counters with the current technology we have, but with that hand scanner, you can. Um, it gets inside of vehicles, inside of small spaces. If you have an officer involved shooting in a bathroom, um, there's some limitations with the full-size scanner, so the hand scanner gets a little bit more finite detail with that. And then also, the scanner can only scan when it sees. So if you have a big crash scene, you might be able to get to the tops of most of the vehicles, but if you have an 18-wheeler or you have a, a large change in elevation, we can now do some um, input with software from our drones and taking video of flyover so we get the tops of trees, the tops of all the vehicles, areas which we've never been able to get before that makes that finished product for courtroom testimony a lot better and a lot cleaner looking. And you just take that video from the drone and import that into a software that creates a point cloud, and then it can be imported into the scanner software and make a complete package. If you want a challenging career, a career where you can make a difference in your life, your family's life, and the lives of those in your community, come and join the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. To learn more or to apply, visit us online at www.joinlso.com. So a lot of people might be listening to this and saying, okay, great. So you've got all this fancy stuff that can get all these points. What do you do with it? And I, and I guess it's, it's important for people to know that that's all boiled down to, you know, what they teach in basic, but especially intermediate crash reconstruction school. It's all about the diagram, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because what we're doing, whether it's, whether it's 3D laser scanners and drones now in, in 2024 or pounding the, you know, the longest nail that you can with the end of your roll of tape into the ground in 1984. It's all been with the goal of trying to get an accurate diagram of what happened and of the evidence that you have at the Mm -hmm. scene. So I want to make sure that people understand at home, you know, what, what we use those diagrams for and how important they are in court. And it kind of goes back to the, the question we were giving you a hard time about Ben, but you know, when, when somebody comes to the scene, they're going to say, how fast was he going? Well, when the county attorney comes and asks, obviously there might be some other questions, but one of them is certainly going to be, how fast were they going? Oh, yeah. And certainly when it gets to court, if speed is a factor in the crash, how fast were they going? Uh, so one of those things that you do learn in intermediate crash investigation classes is the basic speed formula, right? Yes. So. Drew, what what is the what is the basic speed formula? S equals thirty DF. Okay, thanks, Sheriff. So, what is the what's the D in distance? Okay, distance of skid marks. All right. So, 
So we measure skid marks at the scene of a crash. So that's one of the pieces that we can use in the formula. And then how do we figure out F? And what is F? The coefficient of friction on the roadway. So basically the, the drag factor. Yeah. The the amount of friction between the tire of the vehicle in question and the road road surface. Now we've actually been through classes where they can I mean they can take us all the way back to Genesis on where this formula came from. Right. And and it's it's actually if you if you really want to geek out, it's actually pretty interesting um, when you get into the physics of it because it's all physics. It yeah, is. and it's all the pull of gravity and thirty two feet per second squared it, and yeah. It, yeah. And so we can use this formula, not not to tell us an exact speed, but it's a minimum speed that a vehicle would have been going to leave the skid marks that we saw at the scene. So maybe let's let's work through one of these just as an example, Drew. So if you get to a scene and there is a you know a a set of skid marks that are leading up to a crash, a, a point of impact. So we know that a vehicle started braking, locked up their brakes, and skidded to the point that, that the impact occurred. Um, we can use that then as a part of this formula. Mm -hmm. So we were working out a couple of these just before we started talking, but if we've got 150 feet of skid marks, that's not the only thing we need. We still need that drag factor. And so in this example, we'll use a concrete you know, highway-type road, which is... Um, not today, but dry. Not, yeah, a dry, <laughs> dry concrete road. Yeah. Um, we measure them each time, so that, so that we know when we're doing this. And there's, we've got tools that can measure the the coefficient of friction. Yep. Um, on different road surfaces, but for an average, what if we use a point eight? Yep. And it's pretty pretty close for a dry concrete roadway. So we take the square root of thirty, the hundred fifty feet, and point eight, and that gets us a speed of right at about. 60 miles an hour. Yep. So if we've got a 55, 60, 65 mile an hour speed limit, we would know that in that case, the, the vehicle was probably doing at or close to the speed limit um, when they were when they were coming into that, that crash event. Yes. Now, if there is major damage to the vehicle and you have that, that's going to play a major role on how fast it was really going, correct? Yes. Because you know the vehicle wasn't stopped, so that 150 feet of skid marks... They didn't get stopped because the crash occurred. That's right. why we can only tell a minimum. You well, know I mean, and we can then, we can do know, some other can, work. To, you can do some calculations with crash damage mm -hmm. and figure out additional speeds and then combine those. Sure. So just for simplicity's sake, for for people that aren't jotting all this down at home as they're listening or in their car, but if that 150 feet of skid marks changes to 300 feet of skid marks, we use the same drag factor, the same formula. All of a sudden, with a 300 foot skid. We're getting 84.85 miles an hour. Yes. So just to show people the amount of stopping distance that by going, you know, just over 20 miles an hour more, you're doubling the amount of, of distance that mm -hmm. it requires you to stop your vehicle. Yes. So that's just one of the, that's, that's like the first thing that they teach you in intermediate. And then everything else just goes from there. Yeah, because um, it's time distance. And that's one of those things that everybody... Always ask. I mean, obviously, Ben wants to know the speed because if they're driving at a legal posted speed and the crash occurs, um, there may not be any criminal violation depending on the dynamics of the crash. Um, but more often than not, the number one charge of motor vehicle homicide or manslaughter is they were just driving too fast. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to determine what that actual speed was. But the other side of it is, is a lot of those T-bone collisions or pedestrian collisions um, that's why you have to know what time distance were because if they were driving the speed limit and that pedestrian crossed the road, uh, could the pedestrian got across the road safely at the distance they observed the car when they started walking across the road? Maybe. But if they get hit in the middle of that crosswalk and we back that car back up, we find out that that car was obviously going 20 miles an hour or 30 miles an hour over the posted speed limit. Now it becomes a chargeable crash and we have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law, which is where the diagram comes back and a lot of other scenarios get played out of, well, if they were going 30 miles an hour over the speed limit, maybe they cleared it before the pedestrian ever came out. Well, mm -hmm. these are questions that always get asked. That's why we have to do them. The math is there. It's fairly straightforward. 
And to the sheriff's point is if there is damage there, it is just a minimum speed. So we know they had to be going at least that speed to get where they are at the time and point of the collision. But we also have um, energy equations and that's where the technology comes in is now we can measure those intrusions on the vehicles to determine what that actual energy was with um, barrier tests that had already been done to show that in a controlled environment, vehicles ran into a barrier at a known speed and caused a known amount of damage. And you use that information to determine how much energy um, was expelled in that collision and how much energy it took to cause that damage, which then will correlate back to a speed. So that, and that's the, that's one of those other technical aspects of uh, a, a whole class you can go to on crush dynamics. 40 hours. Um, and, and all the things that go with that. So basic speed crush time distance vaults um you know we can learn we can tell a lot just if a vehicle even goes airborne on a vault and uh, and get some speed calculations from that critical speed on a curve yep um rotational analysis i mean the list just goes on for all of the different formulas i can put i can put in kinematics yes yeah. um pedestrian kinematics all of all of those things commercial vehicles motorcycles i mean these are <laughs> these are all things that you're trying to coach your team up um, so that we can cover our bases and uh, and the, the beautiful thing about the 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 team that uh, that we have but also just the larger community of crash reconstructionists is that if you don't have an answer here somebody's only a phone call away yes um, and uh, you can pick up the phone and talk to somebody who's maybe seen what you're seeing before right and I, I I'm telling you I'm very very fortunate because the team that I have we've all specialized in our own little areas um, obviously, I've taken more of the mechanical approach with after a crash happens, we do what's referred to as a vehicle autopsy, and we treat a car just like a human body. We determine were there any mechanical inputs or defects that may have been a attributing factor to the crash, or was the damage to the vehicle as a result of the crash? You, you have those crashes where, you know, I, I went to hit the brakes and it didn't work. Well, when we can go show that the brake system was, in fact, operational at the time of crash, that takes that defense away from that person. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we prove that to be true. Yeah, the brakes, braking system was not operational, so it wasn't necessarily a criminal intent on their part. They had, they had a defect in their, in their braking system. But on the other side of it, we've got Jason Sneeder, who has got a lot of medical training. So when we have injuries to human beings, we can go, and he's our resident expert for autopsies, and he understands the medical aspect of it, of what the occupant kinematics were and what injuries were caused and, and how severe they were and a lot of that stuff. And everybody in our team specializes in a little bit something different. And um, I'm very fortunate to have the team we have and, and have the knowledge that we have in-house without having to go outside. You know, going back to what Jason does, you know, there's three crashes when a crash occurs, you know, it's the two cars hitting each other, then it's the individual hitting inside the car, and then it's the organs of the mm -hmm. individual hitting each other. And I don't think a lot of people think of it that way, but it certainly is true. And that's just the physics. An right. object in motion wants to stay in motion unless acted by an outside force. And those cars hitting each other, the outside force, the body hitting the cars, the outside force, and then the organs hitting the inside of the body. Mm-hmm. There is another technology that I don't know if people know, but uh, it's kind of like a black box. Yeah. Airbag control modules. Um, everything, I think, don't quote me on this one, I want to say since 84, 86, um, has had to have some sort of device that stores the data that the vehicle has in a, cr in a crash. And some of those systems are a little bit more advanced than others, and some are very archaic, but... Um, we do have the ability to access that information, and it gives us a lot of things um, that reaffirm what we find on the scene. So I, I think we look at every one of these crashes from a very specific um, direction in the fact that one system is not going to tell us every event that happened. So um, can you determine what happened in the crash be because of the information on the airbag control module? Yes. The way we treat it is a little bit differently. That's just the data there is can confirm our math, um, roadway evidence, witness statements, maybe video if there is, and there's a lot more video than there used to be, a lot more dash cams than there used to be. But yeah, that, that a lot of people don't realize, you know, they refer to it as a black box, but what it is is it, it, it's just 
a brain that has some sensors to it and every system is a little bit different the early ones had sensors in the front and the back that when they determined a, a certain change in velocity they would start an algorithm and, and an algorithm is nothing more than if this happens then do this so if it knew that it saw a change in velocity of a certain threshold then it would deploy an airbag or in these modern systems it's going to determine it's going to deploy seatbelt pretensioners it's going to deploy side curtain airbags it's going to deploy a, a, a bolster a knee bolster bag which is you know below your steering wheel or it may say oh my gosh this is a really bad collision we're just going to deploy every safety device we have well when it does that it gives us the information that the vehicle was seeing at that point in time so it can tell us things like vehicle speed. It can tell us change in velocity. It contain, it gives us principal directions of force in the crash. Um, it, it can tell seat us belt the, seat belt use. If the turn signal was on, what gear it was in, what RPM it was in, if the braking was on or if the brake switch was on or off, if the cruise was on or off. Um, some of the more advanced systems tell us a lot more than that. Um, steering wheel rotation. So if you have someone that says, I, I saw a pedestrian in the roadway and I swerved to miss them and then I hit them or I swerved to miss them and then I rolled and they didn't hit the pedestrian. If there's no input in that steering wheel data, we've got to ask a few more questions because that may or may not be exactly what happened. Yeah, and I, and I think you made a good point when, when you started talking about that too is that we don't, we don't rely on that because sometimes they're, they're supported devices, sometimes they aren't, but it's a great tool to confirm the other math that we're already doing um, and, and make sure that that's, that that's consistent and, uh, and just kind of a, another way to check our work. Correct. A little bit. So um, one of the other things that I want to talk about, and you, you touched on it briefly earlier on, but we're really lucky in Lincoln, Nebraska to be a, you know, um, a spot where we've got a partnership with the uh, Midwest roadside safety program at the university of Nebraska. And we'll, we'll maybe have to have, Dr. Fowler or, or uh, Dr. Dr. Stolian for uh, um, another episode just to talk about the work that they do because we could we could spend a whole nother episode just talking about that. But yes. do you want to just tell tell our audience how that partnership has helped our team um, grow and, and and what they've done for us? Oh gosh, I mean, I don't even know if I could start on one particular area. The, any information you have from people that are in the industry that are doing crash testing and live crash testing. And, and just for the audience out there a little bit, Midwest roadside safety is a division of the university of Nebraska. And a lot of their research is for roadside safety. So they do roadside barriers. Um, they do a lot of other things as well, but when they you worked with NASCAR on, on their, uh, right. So the safer barrier barriers. with NASCAR yeah. was created here in Lincoln, Nebraska with the research of the university. And um, what they're trying to do is make our roadsides road safe, safer. I mean, if you are going to exit the roadway, their barriers are going to either keep you from harming yourself more or keep that vehicle as close to the roadway where it's safe as possible. And that's what they do. But in that partnership, we get to see a lot of crashes. And really, the only way that you can gain experience in this world is we tend to, as reconstructionists, don't get to see the crash happen. We see the post-crash so we, we take all this post-crash inf information that we have, and now we see these live crashes, we can see what happened to cause the damage that we're seeing later. And that information is invaluable. I can't say enough of how much, how happy I am to have a good relationship with Midwest Roadside Safety. And they share their data, they share whatever information that they can. Obviously they've got some stuff that they can't share if it's proprietary for some research, but. Um, that open line of communication with them is 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 amazing for us, and our input from some of the stuff that we do goes back to them, and they use that information in their research as well, and trying to find better safety systems to keep everybody on the roadway safe. Absolutely, and things are changing. I mean, right now they're doing a lot of research with uh, electronic vehicles, and um, if people aren't aware, those electronic vehicles are very very heavy because that battery technology is not where it needs to be, and it takes a very big, large, heavy battery, and that's stored below you. So your center of gravity in those cars is lowered by, gosh, almost a foot, which changes how cars react when they hit barriers. And right now we're finding out that our barriers just aren't safe enough for the electronic vehicles we're putting on the roadway today. Yeah, they can go up and over. And throw right through them. Yep. Yeah. More, more work to be done. And 
we'll hope to connect with them maybe on another episode that we can dig into their work. But um, guys, any other closing thoughts today on well, uh, on crash reconstruction? One so. of the points that I want to make is all of this stuff is very technical. There's a lot of back-end work. I think, um, let's say you, you had a family member that was involved in a fatal collision and now the sheriff's office is investigating it and you've got a lot of questions. Why is it taking so long? Um, I, I, I can go briefly into it, but this is really what happens in a crash investigation. We have roadway evidence that we have to collect at the scene, which is probably the shortest amount of time we're doing anything. And if it's a really bad collision, that could take up to a couple of hours. Unfortunately, the things that are different with crashes is we have to open that roadway back up for public safety and to get traffic moving. We don't get to shut a house down like at a crime scene. Um, we, we have to release that scene as, as, as soon as possible. And then after that's done, those vehicles are towed. Um, we have a accident reconstruction bay or crash reconstruction bay where we take those vehicles and we photograph them, we measure them, we get center of gravities, we, we do vehicle autopsies on them, we document um, hopefully seating positions of where everybody was at, or if we don't know, we, we try to determine that. <coughs> we take physical evidence from those cars, we download any uh, information that's in that vehicle from the airbag control module. And then that information, along with scanning them at the scene, we scan them again later. So we've got some follow-up that goes with that. And then a lot of this stuff is like anything else. It takes some time to get back. There's some math that has to be done. And with anything, uh, a criminal case takes a lot of time for a trial. There are different stages. There's initial appearances. Um, it, it may be weeks before we determine enough evidence whether we can actually physically charge somebody with a crime. There's a lot of things that happen. So I just want people to be aware that when we're investigating a fatal crash, by no means are we trying to do you a disservice. It takes this long to do a complete and thorough and accurate investigation. And we try to meet with those families. We communicate with them. We try to explain the process of how things are going to happen. Um, we get the county attorney's office involved. We maybe get some other subject matter experts involved. And um, we work through that. And uh, a typical fatal crash investigation with a criminal charge could take anywhere between 10 to 18 months to finally get a resolution. And that being said is if, if your vehicle was in the crash and you were uninjured, but you were part of that collision, we may hold your vehicle for evidence for that entire time because the court requires us to be able to produce this evidence, which could be your car at a trial. And that's why this stuff takes so long. It's not for us to try and keep your car and, you know, we understand people need things out of those and we try to accommodate as much as we can, but we have to retain all the evidence of that, that crime for a trial. And that's why these take so long sometimes. Yeah. Good point. I, you know, Ben, the thing for me is, it, like Drew mentioned, we, we treat these as homicides. They're traffic yeah. homicides. Um, but the, the cool thing about our team is that unlike, you know, with, with a homicide, we would have a CSI team that would help. We would have investigators that go out. Um, our crash team is kind of set it up to do it all. And, and so they, they do the crime scene um, evidence collection, and they do the, uh, the investigative assignments and the search warrants and the toxicology and mm -hmm. the autopsies. Yes. And, um, so that's another thing we didn't even talk about very much is the autopsy on the individuals who were the victims of the, the yeah, crash. Just to match up the injuries that, uh, that you guys are seeing. So well, a lot that, of, a lot of stuff. Yeah. And then like any of those, you know, your talk toxicology, uh, to come back is six to eight, you know, eight weeks to 12 yeah. and it takes that long. And, you know, the, one of the things I think people, you know, the, it's the CSI a syndrome of on TV, mm -hmm. it's solved in an yep. hour, and that's just not reality, yep. especially in crash reconstruction. Yeah, well, I, uh, I just, I know that uh, the the people of Lancaster County can be proud that, uh, God forbid, um, they're ever involved in one of these things. They've got one of the best trained and equipped and uh, and performing crash reconstruction teams um, in the region, if not the country. And uh, just kudos to you and your team, Drew, for uh, all the work that you guys do and uh, and. Um, in these cases, but also just preparing for these cases and being ready should the worst happen. Well, and the thing too is we need to mention is uh, Drew gets contacted by a lot of outside agencies to mm -hmm. review their crashes and do that part. And that just says a lot uh, about uh, how good he is at this and the, the rest of his team. So, you know, it's always a big feather in our hat here at LSO when people are coming to us and saying, hey, can your people come help us? 
And another note I want is a lot of bigger metropolitan agencies do have these reconstruction units and they're full-time people. Our staff does not do this full-time. Like I'm obviously the sergeant in professional standards, so I've got a full-time job to do in addition to this. So when these crashes happen, this is an additional duty. Um, the rest of the team works within our patrol division and they're still going to have to take calls for service and <coughs> investigate burglaries and so th this is an ancillary role to what they do and the fact that they do it so well in addition to their regular job duties um, on an average fatal crash investigation uh, between our team we could have upwards of 200 to 400 hours of investigation time and that's in addition to their day-to-day -day operational duties so a huge shout out to my staff. They work really, really hard. It's a huge burden onto them, um, not only with the additional training, but the additional caseload. And if a, if a case does make it to trial, there's another 80 to 100 hours of courtroom testimony preparation that has to be done. So it, it, it's an extra role that they do, and I'm glad that they do it, and I'm glad they do it as well as they do. Yeah, and Sheriff, I, you know, I kind of joke sometimes, and it's, it's one of the special things about LSO, but we're, you know, we're, Oh, you're going to say it, aren't you? I, I am. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we, we talk we're small enough, small enough to care, big enough to serve, but we're, we're kind of class C high school. Sometimes the quarterback has to march with the band at halftime. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so that's, that, that, that's just one, yeah. of the, that's one of the unique things that, that makes LSO special to me. But uh, um, you wouldn't know it uh, from the outside looking in with, with the great work you and your team are doing, Drew. So thank you. Thank you. That is all the time that we have for today's episode of the 902 podcast. We could probably go on and talk about crash reconstruction for some time, but we'll catch up on a future episode uh, digging a little bit deeper into some of the more technical aspects of crash reconstruction. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode and you want to listen to more episodes of the 902 podcast, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you enjoy podcasts. You can also find us on social media at LSO Nebraska. We're on Facebook, X, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, you can reach out to us via email, lso at lancaster.ne.gov. And if you have questions or are interested in career opportunities at the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office, be sure to visit us at www.joinlso.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.